Chapter 11 How shall I tell it, Ganapati? It is such a long story, an epic in itself, and we have so much else to describe. Shall I tell of the strange weapon of disobedience, which Ganga, with all his experience of insisting upon obedience and obtaining it toward himself, developed into an arm of moral war against the foreigner? Shall I sing the praises of the mysterious ammunition of truth force, the strength of unarmed slogan-chanting demonstrators falling defenseless under the hail of police lattes, the power of wave after wave of khaki-clad men and women, arms and voices raised, marching handcuffs to their imprisonment? Shall I speak, Ganapati, and shall you write of the victory of non-violence of the organized violence of the state, the triumph of bare feet over hobnailed boots, the defeat of legislation by the awesome strength of silence. I see, Ganapati, that you have no advice to offer me. Your wish, as usual, to sit back with your ponderous brow, glowering in concentration, that long nose of yours coiling itself around my ideas. And let me choose my own thoughts, my own words. Well, I suppose you're right. It is, after all, my story. The story of Vedvyas. Doddering and decrepit, though you think I am, and yet, it is also the story of India, your country and mine. Go ahead, Ganapati. Sit back. I shall tell you of it. What a life Gangaji had, and how much we know of it. For in the end, he spared us no detail of it. Did he? Not even a single thought of fear or dream went unrecorded. Not one hope or lie or enema. It was all there in his writings in the impossibly small print of his autobiography, in the inky mess of his weekly rag, in those countless letters, I wonder how he found the time to write to disciples, critics, or government officials, in those conversations he conducted, sometimes on his days of silence, by writing with a pencil stub on the backs of envelopes, with every prospective biographer or journalist. Yes, he told us everything, Gangaji. From those gaps in his early years that the British had been so worried about to the celibate experience of his later life when he got all those young women to take off their clothes and lie beside him to test the strength of his adherence to that terrible vow. He told us everything, Kanapati, and yet how little we remember, how little we understand, how little we care. Do you remember the centenary of his birth, Kanapati? The nation paid obeisance to his memory, speeches were delivered with tireless verbosity, exhibitions organized, seminars held, all on the subject of his eventful life. They discussed the meaning of his vegetarianism, its profound philosophical implications, though I know it was simply that he didn't want to sink his teeth into any corpse, and you can't make that much into a philosophy, can you? They thought of they talked about his views on subjects he knew nothing about, from solar energy to foreign relations, though I thought he knew foreign relations were what you acquired if you married abroad. They even pulled out the rusting wood and iron spinning wheels he wanted everyone to use to spin khadi instead of having to buy British textiles, and they all weaved symbolic centimeters of homespun. Yet, I know, the entire purpose of the wheel was not symbolic, but very down-to-earth and practical. It meant to make you what you South Indians call mundas, not metaphors. And so they celebrated a hundredth birthday he might have lived to see, had not the husbandless Amba, after so many austerities, exacted her grotesque revenge. We Indians cannot resist obliging the young to carry our burdens for us, 
as you well know, Ganpati, shouldering mine. So they asked the educational institutions, the schools and the colleges to mark the centenary as well, with more speeches, more scholarly forums, but also parades and marches and essay contests for all the little scrubbed children who had inherited the freedom Gangaji had fought so hard to achieve. And what did they find, Ganapati? They found that the legatees knew little of their spiritual and political benefactor. That despite lessons in school textbooks, despite all the ritual hypocrisies of politicians and leader writers, the message had not sunk into the little brains of the lubricating brats. Gangaji is important because he was the father of our Prime Minister, wrote one ten-year-old with a great sense of relevance than accuracy. Gangaji was an old saint who lived many years ago and looked after cows, suggested another. Gangaji was a character in the Mahabharata, noted a third. He was so poor he did not have clothes to wear. Of course, it is easy, Ganapati, to get school children to come up with howlers, especially those whose minds are being filled in the bastard educational institutions the British sired on us. But the innocent ignorance of those Indian schoolboys pointed to a larger truth. It was only two decades after Gangaji's death, but they were already unable to relate him into their lives. He might as well have been a character from the Mahabharata, Ganapati. So completely had they consigned him to the mists and myths of historical legend. Let us be honest, Gangaji was the kind of person it is more convenient to forget. The principles he stood for and the way in which he asserted them were always easier to admire than to follow. While he was alive, he was impossible to ignore and once he had gone, he was impossible to imitate. When he spoke of his intentions to his three young wards, trembling tensely before him at the brink of adulthood, he was not lying or posturing. It was indeed truth that he was after. Spell that with a capital T, Ganapati. Truth. Truth was his cardinal principle, the standard by which he tested every action and utterance. No dictionary imbues the word with the depth of meaning Gangaji gave it. His truth emerged from his convictions. It meant not only what was accurate, but what was just and therefore right. Truth could not be obtained by untruthful or unjust or violent means. You can well understand why Dhritarashtra and Pandu, in their different ways, found themselves unable to live up to his precepts even in his own lifetime. But his was not just an idealistic denial of reality either. Some of the English have a nasty habit of describing his philosophy as one of passive resistance. Nonsense. There was nothing passive about his resistance. Gangaji's truth required activism, not passivity. If you believed in truth and cared enough to obtain it, Gangaji affirmed, you had to be prepared actively to suffer for it. It was essential to accept punishment willingly in order to demonstrate the strength of one's convictions. That is where Gangaji spoke for the genius of a nation. We Indians have a great talent for deriving positives from negatives. Non-violence, non-cooperation, non-alignment all mean much, much more than what the concepts they negate. VV, he said to me once as I sat on the floor by his side and watched him assiduously spin what he would wear around his waist the next day. One must vindicate the truth not by the infliction or suffering on the opponent, but on oneself. In fact, he said not oneself, but one's self, which tells you how carefully he weighed his concepts and his words. 
I still remember the first of the great incidents associated, if now so forgettably, with Gangaji. He had ceased to be the regent and was living in a simple house built on a river bank, which he called an ashram, and the British resident, who now refused to use native words where perfectly adequate English substitutes were available, referred to that as a commune. He lived there with a small number of followers of all castes, even his children of God, whom he discovered to be as distressingly human as their touchable counterparts. And he lived the simple life he had always sought, but failed to attain at the palace. Which is to say that he wrote and spun and read and received visitors who had heard of his radical ideas, of his willingness to live up to them. One day, just after the midday meal, a simple vegetarian offering concluding with the sole luxury that he permitted himself, a bunch of dates procured for him at the town market many miles away, a man came to the ashram and fell at his feet. We were all sitting on a veranda, yes, Ganapati. I was there on one of my visits. And it was a scorching day, with the heat rising off the dry earth and shimmering against the sky. The kind of day when one is grateful to be in an ashram rather than on the road. It was then that a peasant, his slippers and clothes stained from dust of his journey, his lips cracking with dryness, entered, called Gangaji's name, staggered towards him and fell prostrate. At first we thought it might simply be a rather dramatic gesture of obeisance. You know how we Indians are. But when Gangaji tried to lift the man up by his shoulders, it was clear that his collapse had to do more than courtesy. He had lost consciousness. After he had been revived with a splash of water, he told us in a hoarse whisper, of the heat and exhaustion of his long walk. He had come over a hundred miles on foot and he had not eaten for days. We gave him something to chew and swallow and the peasant Rajkumar told us his story. He was from a remote district on Hastinapur's border with British India, but on the British side of the frontier. He wanted Gangaji to come with him and see the terrible condition of his fellow peasants and do something to convince the British to change things. Why me? Gangaji asked, not unreasonably. I have no official position anymore in Hastinapur. I can pull no strings for you. We have heard you believe in justice for the rich and poor, twice-born and low-caste alike, the peasant said simply. Help us. He was reluctant, but the peasant's persistence moved him, and in the end, Ganga went to Rajkumar's impoverished district. And what he saw there changed him and the country beyond measure.